This is Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Carrie Sanders was always on the move. He was reported from all 50 states as an NBC News correspondent, 65 countries. He stepped on every continent on Earth. Yep, even Antarctica. You probably know Carrie from the Today Show. Might have seen him diving with sharks or rappelling down the side of a cliff, jumping out of an airplane. You probably saw him doing more serious work, too reporting from Iraq, where he was embedded with Marines. He covered the Parkland shooting and the Surfside collapse. He lives in South Florida, so yeah, there were hurricanes. For almost 200 days a year, he was traveling, always on the move. Not even Kerry Sanders can keep up that pace. After 32 years, Kerry retired from NBC and The Today Show. The pandemic forced him uh, to stay put for a while. He and his wife Deborah, a journalist herself, realized maybe it was time to do more of that together. But for a guy who's been traveling the world since he was a boy, I suspect they have interesting plans. So let's talk about how you got here and where you're going next. Welcome, Kerry. Thank you very much. Glad to join you. So I am, uh, you know, I I was really interested in this whole idea of you always on the move, always on the move, you know, this kind of lifestyle that takes you all over the world. And then the pandemic forces everyone to stop going everywhere. It was putting the brakes on and, you know, going from 100 miles an hour to inching along. And it presented a tremendous challenge as a reporter uh, and also just our lifestyle. I mean, uh, thankfully, uh, we have been married for decades and we uh, have been together even longer than that. We met in Immokalee, Florida, and I'm sure there's some people scratching their heads right now saying, where's Immokalee? Uh, but we were both in uh, Fort Myers as local reporters, my wife with the news press and me with the WINK, which is the CBS station over there. And we were out in Immokalee covering a freeze that had devastated the vegetable crop. And uh, that's a big deal in Florida. Yeah, we provide absolutely. the the tomatoes, the the peppers at the winter. I mean, California sort of out of the game and Florida owns it. And so when that hit back in 83, 1984, we knew that uh, this was going to be a big story. And we met out there and uh, uh, I was more interested in than her to begin with. (laughs) But I guess that sometimes happens. But our lives wound up uh, where we'd been together for a very long time and happily married. But you know, when you're on the road 200 days a year, you know, it's a little different than being together. And uh, actually, I got to say, the pandemic was good. It was like a test run for when I would be home as I am now. Right. And and you really got a chance, a sense to like figure, oh, this is what my life could look like if I'm not on a plane, uh, you know, three times a week or something like that. And more than three times a week. I mean, sometimes I would be on three planes a day because, as you know, the news changes. Yeah. One day you're flying from... Uh, Fort Lauderdale to Orlando, landing in Orlando, getting a text message saying, we need you in Raleigh and heading (laughs) off to Raleigh, doing the story for Nightly News. And then they say, "Okay, we need you to head out west if you could make your way to Denver, because there's a story we need for tomorrow morning. So it's uh, very much been a go, go, go. But you know, something happened during the pandemic that changed even reporting for TV reporters. as newspaper reporters, and my wife being one of them, you formerly one of them, there's a lot of ground that can be covered on a phone where right. you can talk to people and everything else. Mm-hmm. Television, up until the pandemic, required that you either get there or at least the cameraman and the sound man would get there 
And sometimes we'd say, just look off camera. We'd talk to them on a speakerphone. But almost always, we'd made our effort to get there. Uh, But when the pandemic hit, this was a case of your health. You don't want to be either susceptible to getting coronavirus or passing it along. And so we began using Zoom as did the rest of the nation to just do business. Yeah, we got very and, comfortable with Zoom after a while. Yeah. Well, the audience got comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And if you watch if you watch any of our broadcasts now and on NBC or the other networks, you will very often see an interview with Zoom. Now, technically, we would complain. It doesn't look as good. It doesn't sound as good. I'm here in the studio with you. This sounds great with the microphones we're on versus somebody, say, calling in on a phone. And that's kind of the way we felt with Zoom. Right. But there was another side to Zoom that I didn't realize until we started using it as extensively as we do. And that is we could reach just about anybody. I don't care how busy you are. Newsmakers who didn't want a camera crew traipsing into their office, setting up, spending the 45 minutes that it takes to put up the lights to do the 20-minute interview to then wind up having you know a 15-second soundbite on the news. All of a sudden, it became very easy to reach people and experts around the world. So when I needed to speak to somebody in Switzerland, as I needed to do, because that was the expert, all of a sudden... That person was available with Zoom as opposed to what would have been previous to the pandemic of saying, okay, I got to get a crew. Can we put the crew from our London bureau over to Switzerland or hire a freelancer to go in and set up to do this? And by the way, only about you know 18 seconds of that whole interview will probably get on the air. But now well, you could send them a Zoom link and uh, it took a lot of that pre-planning yes, out of the way. Exactly. I'm curious then... When you have this kind of busy lifestyle and then the pandemic forces you to put the brakes on and rethink everything in your home, how did that influence your decision to ultimately say, you know, enough is enough with the daily journalism, the day broadcast journalism? Well, I I did think about this. Um, One of the things that has been my greatest joy as a reporter is the physical being there. Mm -hmm. I experience these things. Now, some people would say that's no experience, laying in the mud, crawling in the dirt, Uh, being in a war zone where bullets are flying, all that sort of stuff. But through all of my experiences, whether I was diving with sharks or doing a story on uh, how global, uh, you know, global climate change is impacting things like turtles or what is reflected in the buffalo and, and what that messages it's telling us. Throughout all of that, there was a personal gain for me that I hope translated in the telling of the story, because when you're physically there and you're experiencing it, that adds to the telling of the story. There is an element where you bring people in with your own enthusiasm, with your own interest and what have you. And when that disappeared because of coronavirus, um, I thought to myself, if I had been fortunate enough to do an interview with, uh, with Gandhi... And it was by Zoom. Not via seance. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But if I did an interview with Gandhi and it was by Zoom, could I tell you five years later, oh my God, I can, the time I did the interview with Gandhi, it was just amazing. Is that real? Would he remember of the hundreds of Zoom interviews that Gandhi would have done that he remembered doing an interview with me? I might remember it as opposed to, I sat with him, we talked off camera, we shared a meal together, we discussed things. And that, and so 
that experience, and I know this is selfish, but that experience was a big part of what I enjoyed doing in my stories. And I use Gandhi as an example because people obviously sure. would all to love the opportunity to have done an interview like that. But even with the individuals that nobody knew, and a lot of my stories were with people who were not on TV or not on radio or not in the media on a regular basis. And I enjoyed talking to those people far more than the prepackaged people who have been interviewed so much, they spit out the same sound bites over and over and over. Um, that to me was, I'm missing it. And I see where this is going to disappear in some ways because the audience is now accepting of Zoom. Right. You can travel the world with just an internet. And while the storytelling and the information and facts are as important as ever, again, I'm telling you this is selfishly, well, why do we do why do we do anything, right? Why do we do the the job that we pick to do? Because it's something about it that interests us, right? right. I mean, I could tell you honestly, I never felt like I had a job. I, w- I was like, you know, uh, this. The, one of my very good friends said when I told him that I was going to uh, retire, said, "I can't believe it, Carrie, because this is your hobby, and it's very true. It's been my hobby." Well, I could just see you doing like one of these travel shows, like these food travel shows. People <laughs> still do. I mean, people still do travel, you know, through their other senses, through their eyes and ears. Right. And when they watch TV, I could. And I love those shows because um, you probably don't know when I was a teenager, I lived in South America. I went to high school in Lima, Peru. Oh, we'll get to that. And okay. <laughs> so, and yeah. And I lived in England before that. And I, I think actually that's part of what actually built me into who I am of wanting to see the world and always experiencing it. But you talk about those travel shows and the food shows. Um what I enjoy actually is not the differences, because there are obviously many differences, but the common themes that you find throughout food, throughout cultures, throughout the way people do things. And how many times do you land in a city and say, this reminds me of Seattle or this well, reminds I had me a of rule. I, I had Canada. a rule on the road and the rule is no chains. I would not eat at a chain. I would make my effort to find a mom and pop place, whether I was in... Um, Let's see, where were we? We were in some a large Ethiopian population. I can't remember. Somewhere in the Midwest, probably Detroit or something Detroit like that. Detroit or but Minneapolis. Anyway, yeah. we, Minneapolis. That's where we were, Minneapolis. Ah, look at Always that. Look at that, to, folks. Very good. <laughs> Always trying to find a way to try something that I had never had, to do something different, to make sure also I'm on an expense account. Why should I feed that corporate money on my expense account into another corporation when I can do it with a uh, mom and pop. So I've always enjoyed uh, sampling. Sometimes it's a hit, sometimes it's a miss. Yeah. But you know what? You don't know if you don't try. Yeah, you're a man after my own heart. I, you know, after being a food editor for the Herald for years, that my, you know, I was drilled it into my kids. When we go somewhere new, we gotta we gotta support local and what have you. And sometimes it's like, Dad, can we just have McDonald's? And it's like <laughs> sometimes you gotta give in. But you know what? For the most part, you know, try something new, support a local place, and and surprise yourself. You, you know? know what my big miss is? What's and that? of course, you don't know this until I'm 62 now. You don't know this when you're in your 30s. But I'm traveling the world, and I am having an opportunity in say Jordan where they would take this bread and throw it up against the side of the oven and they would cook it. Or I was in Albania and they would make the fresh yogurt, like a yogurt I've never had before in my life. Just wonderful. Anyway, had I had enough knowledge that I do now, and again, we didn't really have cell phones for a lot of my travels, so I don't have a lot of pictures that are certainly high quality. Um, But had I known then what I wish I knew, 
uh, I would have taken pictures and gotten the recipes for each place I was at, like in Tajikistan, where they took a chicken and took it on a beer can and then all the different herbs that we put it on and made our meals. I could have taken pictures and I could have gotten the recipes and then I could have gotten photographs of each location of where I was for whatever the story was with a little narrative. I'd have a heck of a cookbook. Let, let me tell you, I mean, retirement, I wish I did that. retirement is a great time to retrace your your you know 20 favorite places man let's uh that could be that could be a great cookbook and listen beer can chicken i did not know that that was a hidden tajikistan (laughs) but uh it is in my house oh um carrie talk to me a little bit a little bit about that adventurous spirit so take me uh let's start back way back a little bit um where did you get that hunger and that interest to travel and see the world well i definitely got it from my mother my mother who uh had grown up in south america and uh, as we grew up, it was always known that we were going to go somewhere and do things. So my brother is older than me. And when Kevin was nine years old, he moved down to Trujillo in Peru. And Is your mom Peruvian or did she no, just, how did she end up? she's in... an American, she'd love to tell you she's Peruvian. If she were alive today, she would tell you that. <laughs> Cut her blood and it would come out uh, the colors of the flag. Oh, that's so, so funny. Um, I mean, she grew up there. But she was the uh, daughter of uh, Americans who were there, and her father worked for the DuPont Chemical Company ah, in Peru. Uh, corporate so, expats, you know, very, exactly. very common But story. she very much felt that she was Peruvian. Where, she, so, where was she from? Where's your family from? My, my mother was born in Philadelphia. My dad was born in Philadelphia. He was an orphan, oh. and they had met in Philadelphia uh, when my mother was back uh, from Peru. So after she had moved back as a... Uh, in her 20s, 30s, 20s, in her 20s. Wow. Um, but uh, she she went to San Silvestre, which is a school, if we have folks who are from Lima, they would know that school. When I went down, I went to Markham. But my brother uh, had gone to Trujillo when he was nine years old, came back when he was 11, and you know, flew, flew it in Spanish, very much uh, Peruvian. And so I wanted to do what my brother had done. Absolutely. I mean, he went on this great adventure. I wanted to do the same thing. So your dad was down. No, no, no. My dad was, uh, my brother was just living with what we would call family. And if you're Latin, which you are, you know that when you talk about uh, primos and primas, it's kind of like a, what's our blood relationship? Well, we're just primos. You know, you're not, sometimes you're not sure. Third, fourth, fifth cousins. I don't know. Or maybe not. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just friends. Exactly. So uh, my a brother had gone down and lived with, let's say, cousins, and um, one of their uh, children down there had come up and lived with us. In fact, two of them had lived with us, Lali and Alicia, uh-huh. uh, Lali and Alicia Manucci. So um, when it was got to be, when it turned around to be my turn at around eleven years old, there was just too much violence in Peru, and my my mom especially was like, "It's just not safe. It's just not the right time for you to go down there." We happened to be traveling in England at the time as a family, uh, and my father was a director with the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. Now, before you start waving your hands up and down, it wasn't that kind of director. He was on the board of directors. I got you. But we were there, and uh, my mother on a whim talked to my dad and then said, you know, Kerry may never get a chance to do what his brother did. Uh, Maybe he could go to school here in England. 
And so while we were there, my mom just turned to me, what would you think about going to school here in England? Because you probably can't go to Peru. And I was like, I would love it. Again, you know, the jealous brother who always wants to do what his, his, his older, older brother, brother was doing. Done. Yeah. So I went to a boarding school in England for two years, uh, far from London, down in uh, Seaford in Sussex. And then when I wasn't in school, I was in Devon, which is a very rural kind of cow town, uh, county, beautiful area. Um, so your your parents had very much kind of this itinerant life. They weren't necessarily nailed to a place. No. And my mother believed your best education is going to come from experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, again, my father was an orphan. He had a very, very different life. He had uh, lied about his age, uh, joined what was then the Army Air Force, uh, oh, the Air 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 Corps. What was yeah, it called? what was the? It was the it was the Army, and they had the Air Force. And he would um, he flew in the. I've seen the plane too. It's it's the, the same one as the Memphis Bell. I think it's the the B. I think it's something. the B twenty four C. I think okay. I'm not sure. I've seen it, and I can't remember the number. A big bomber but, plane. Yeah. And uh, his plane crashed, and he was the only one to survive. So wow. it was, you know. But anyway, his At life was are... very different than my mother's because yeah. he was in an orphan, he uh, in an orphanage, got out, uh, you know, joined the military, lied about his age. Uh, in fact, the story goes that when uh, he, the plane crashed and he was in the uh, what we might call a mash unit, but when he was in the hospital, yeah, the doctors were talking about having to cut off his leg because of the accident, uh, an amputation. And he got up and said, looking, you know, from the bed, he goes, you can't cut off my leg. I'm only 15 years old. And they go, what do you mean you're 15 years old? And he goes, well, I lied about my age. No, you have to understand, in World War II, a lot of people did that. A lot of people, but it's oh. still, but let's take a step back. Think about the, the next 15-year-old in your life. Mine is my sophomore daughter. My daughter is a sophomore in high school. You know, the idea of a, of a kid in a plane right. flying over Europe, right. dropping bombs on Europe, right. is, and then being almost killed in battle. Right. How terrifying. So, uh, you know, they talk about the greatest generation. I'm, I'm with that. You know, Tom Brokaw nicknamed him that. And, uh, you know, I've had a chance to interview actually what are now the, the increasingly few uh, World War II vets. And Very I did left. it. We went to Pearl Harbor and I talked to some. And we also went to Normandy for D-Day and talked to some. And uh, both very impactful. Anyway, getting back to your question, which is, you know, my mother's goal. And so I went to school at the boarding school for two years in England. I felt like it provided a very unique structure to me. It's a very different approach to education there than it is in the United States. I mean, um, you just a simple example, it was all boys school. When the uh, teacher would walk in, everybody would stand up and say, good morning, sir. Or, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, sir. And everything was, you, your name was not Carrie. Your last name was your name, Sanders. You know, that's what they called you. It was uh, somewhat impersonal, somewhat strict. Mr. Um, Sanders, please take your take your it desk. It wasn't even Mr. It was just Sanders. Okay. It's very interesting. Um, I wound up having a British accent when I came back. Is that right? I was there for two years, but I've lost it and I can't even fake it. My <laughs> my wife says I sound like a Acme Jamaican accent when I try to do my, uh, uh, my experience in England. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, well, Kerry, I, I, I love this story, and I want to pick up more on it and how these early travels of your parents led to your own early travels and, and a life of, of travel and reporting for NBC News. We're speaking with Kerry Sanders, uh, who's a retired NBC News correspondent and a Today Show regular. We'll be back with him on Sundial in just a minute. We're 
back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Carrie Sanders, a retired NBC News correspondent and today's show regular. Carrie, you were telling me uh, about this kind of very um, uh, itinerant life that your parents had for different reasons, your dad being an orphan and being a World War II vet at 15 and, and your mom growing up with family of, of expats, you know, uh, back and forth between the U.S. and Peru. And clearly that influenced your your desire, your thirst for adventure. Um, how did that lead to then journalism, this idea of like this could lead down this path of adventure? Well, uh, I it, it's kind of interesting in terms of my curiosity. So um, when I when I turned 15, I went to Peru and I finished high school down there. And so uh, this was a time, 1975, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have FaceTime. I would just call home to my parents once a week, and I would ride my bike to a guy's house, and he had a ham radio, and we would do what we'd call a phone patch in the United States. So we'd do the ham radio call to somebody in the United States that would then patch the signal into my parents, and it would be like, hi, mom, how you doing? Over. And my mother would say, oh, my God, Carrie, how are you doing? Your voice sounds weird. And then she would forget to say over. And so somebody would say, you have to say over to end the call. It's all very primitive. But what I'm telling you is, is that I was very much exploring on my own. Right. You it were was really, not that's... a case of my parents taking me along. And so I made friends. I saw wonderful places. We would go up into um, into the Andes, to Cajon de Huaylas. I would go to, uh, I went down to Iquitos in the, uh, in the Amazon. We got on a canoe. We spent three days going up river. We went to uh, the Tigre River. We, we saw just really cool things, staying with people. And it was just kind of like my adventure. And that I think sort of filled into my journalism, which is I want to see, I want to experience, I want to share. And so it was all very much a uh, a wonderful kind of like primer to get to me to where I was or where I've been. And I started out thinking that I might do newspapers. Well, in, in Peru, you read the news too, I right? I did. I did. Like, um, come on. Radio if you're, Pacifico. If you're, on, if you're on radio or on TV, you're, you got to be a little bit of a ham. Exactly. Right? That's absolutely true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. My wife says that you have no... Uh, I have... I have uh, I guess no ability to be embarrassed. It doesn't matter to me. I, I don't care. And that probably helps. It probably helps. But I thought, you know, I would try to do, I did newspapers for a little bit, but, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I actually kind of like, I should say I conquered a hill, um, and that is dyslexia can really make things difficult for you. And that was always the case for me in, in school. Uh, letters jumbled uh, and imagine going into imagine going into your your I didn't learn Spanish at home I learned it in Peru so wow. you're going into your uh, your chemistry class and you're first of all dealing with a foreign language and then you're trying to read it and then you're not sure how the letters are all formed because things are a little jumbled so I, I kind of wandered away from newspaper reporting and was very happy to get into TV reporting because while the script is written in most cases, on the you know very tightly edited packages, the audience isn't reading what I've written. It's just an editor and a producer and a senior producer, and they can look past the errors or they can correct them. It's not as embarrassing as you're turning it in for publication and having those kind of mistakes show up in, in the way you write things. Ultimately, the performance is what matters, because really a lot of it is whether you're relaying very serious news or what have right. you, you're still 
entering people's houses and minds and what have you. Exactly. You know, performance is an interesting word because you, you're not acting. You are sharing the moment that you have. Mm. Uh, the, <laughs> there's a really old joke in television that the secret to success is sincerity. And once you can fake that, you got it made. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, you have to be incredibly honest. You know, I can't tell you how many times people ask me about the anchors on the Today Show, and they want to know, what is Savannah really like? What is Hoda really like? You know, what is Al really like? And I'm like, trust me, it's exactly what you see. You cannot go on the air for hours upon hours and fake it. It's exactly who you are. Right. So when when uh, Al, who is probably the fastest gun in the West because he's so quick with his, you know, his jokes and that's that's who he is. He's not like, that's not like there's a planned script that he he worked out, you know, a day in advance. It's just exactly who he is. I'm curious about that idea of putting forward your most interesting self, right? Like as you're doing that because you're engaging people, how much of that came from you being on stage early? I understand that uh, you did some ballet. Boston Ballet. I was very proud of that with the Nutcracker and uh, was Fritz in uh, what everybody knows as the Nutcracker and also uh, Margot Fontaine. And I got a chance to dance with Margot Fontaine, you know, so she even signed a wow. slipper. So a uh, very special moment for me. My mother, who, uh, <laughs> again, strong influence. My mother was uh, a ballerina. She was a ballet instructor. She was a, a gymnast. She had at one point been in a circus in Brazil, uh, and she was a um, uh, she was she was an Olympic gymnastic coach. Unfortunately, that was the Olympics that got canceled by Jimmy Carter because Russia had invaded Afghanistan. Oh, so wow. think about that when you consider what we did in Afghanistan. But nonetheless, so um, yes, so you, know, you really come from the, this this family of folks who are really these fearless folks. You're you're you know yeah. It's really uh, it, it's you know once you've conquered. Uh, things like that. You're kind of not scared to, to read the news or be on the news and, and go exactly. to a new place. But I do want to I do want to say that like when I am, it's a very fine line. The story is never about the reporter. The story is with the story. And as a reporter, my job is to share what I'm seeing and how I'm seeing it. And if it's a live report and there's a way to be demonstrative, um, I, I'll give you an example. The nation was watching something that we just couldn't imagine, that a building had collapsed in Surfside. Right. It just didn't seem reasonable. Nobody had ever heard of just, I mean, this was not Turkey with an earthquake. This was just a day that a building came down. Just like a sunny Thursday and a, and a building collapsed. Yeah, in, 90, in the middle of the night. It was just crazy. Surfside. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. So in my reporting... I was standing, and I, I have to always be conscious that my audience is not a South Florida audience. My audience is nationwide. Right. And in this case, NBC is very often worldwide. Uh, I was surprised when I went to Australia, people knew me on the street. I was like, really? How do you know me? They're like, oh, you know, Today Show, we're cult followers We've down seen here. you on the telly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, I just reached down into the soil and dug my hands up and brought it up to show what the sandy soil is in where we live right because you know if you were in georgia or if you were in massachusetts or somewhere else it'd be very different and so when i talk about being demonstrative it's very often those moments that you are taking somebody there and showing them something you remember that incredible story of the uh and this was not too long ago 
the guy who's flying in a Cessna caravan and the pilot slumps over and there's nobody to fly the plane. And this passenger gets into the front, pulls the pilot off, gets in, never having flown a plane, lands it safely. And everybody's like, how is this possible? You know. And so we did that story. And the way to do that demonstratively was to find a similar plane and then walk into the plane, show that. And by doing all of that, you physically can understand the process of what he had to go through versus me just saying, as I did here, and, you know, your challenge in radio is to always sort of figure out how you can illustrate through words. But television reporters can use the crutch of the visual. Well, I mean, and, and uh, a story like that makes it so um, it's so easy to kind of get into. Like you can you have so much to show and, and it's a, such a great way to get into it. What what brought you to Florida? Like what did the idea of, you know, this this reporting and being kind of all over the world and being in Peru? How did you get to be a reporter? that started here at uh, WTVJ, right? WTVJ, but I can I can back you up. So okay. I come out of Peru. I am flying. Every flight used to land in Miami. I landed in Miami, and my aunt lived in Orlando. And she said, come visit. I called my parents. She said, yeah, absolutely. So this is my mother's youngest sister, who's 10 years younger than my mother. And uh, I'm with Helen Sue. And she goes, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'll probably go to college. She says, well, you know, they're probably not going to recognize a diploma from, from some high school in Peru. So I'm a high school teacher. Why don't you get a diploma from my high school and then you can get in-state tuition in Florida? Oh, because that was I said smart. I wanted to go to college in Florida. Right, nice move. And uh, Thank you, Aunt. Let's see if you're old enough to remember this. The requirement back in, this is the late 70s, the requirement, I only needed one class to graduate. That's and all you needed for the equivalency. One class. And it's called Americanism versus Communism. Oh, my God. That's, that, that squares okay. so perfectly in Florida. So this was that you had to learn the evils of communism. This is a holdover, obviously, from the Cuban Missile Crisis and you know the migration from Cuba and everything else. So um, I took that course, took others, because you can't just take one course. Finished at high school in Orlando. It's about six months worth of study there. Got my diploma. And then I went to, I thought... I'll go to school in Florida. I'd already indicated that. I didn't want to go. My parents were in New England, cold weather, not interested. I wasn't going to get into Harvard. I was, you know, kind of a CD student. I'm not the greatest <laughs> student in the world. Uh, student of for- the world. <laughs> Fortunately, yes. Fortunately, I had uh, gotten, uh, back then it was pretty easy because people are listening right now going, wait, what? Because <laughs> I got in the University of Florida, Florida State, and the University of South Florida. And that was very easy back then. Uh, you didn't have to be, uh, now you have to have like a 5.9 or a 6.2, you know, in, yep. in your GPA to get into like the University of Florida. Yeah. Um, I'm a basic student, but uh, I chose to go to the University of South Florida. My aunt went there, but I also looked at the other schools because we physically drove around and looked at them. And I'm like, not a reason to pick a school, by the way. Uh, this is such a pretty <laughs> new school. It looks nice. It's like not old. And so I chose to go to the University of South Florida. And uh, then from there, I'll be quick. I got... A job, as I said, at, uh, back in Massachusetts working for a, uh, a newspaper. I did a little bit of radio in Tunnel Radio. Okay. Anybody who's ever been in Boston knows that there's the Sumner and Callahan Tunnel that you could get stuck in. Some brilliant engineer figured out that every car that went in on the AM dial went to hash. So why don't we broadcast to all channels when they're on their AM radio? So... That if you're in brilliant. the left lane, please move to the right lane. If you're in the right <laughs> lane, please move to the left lane. Stuff like that. And then I'd read a little snippet of news and stuff like that. So from Tunnel Radio, uh, 
I had filled out while I was at USF on some bulletin board that I never remember that I wanted to work in media, in television, something like that. And it was called the Florida Motion Picture Television Association. Uh, and they would give you a stipend. Now, the idea behind this, and it doesn't exist anymore, was that the government would pay you to learn this business because we wanted to grow more movie making, more television in the state of Florida. So I moved down to Jacksonville, Florida, where I had got uh, this uh, Florida Motion Picture Television Association job at a TV station. And I got paid $3.35 an hour working at the station and couldn't have been happier. I found a, a friend of mine from Tampa who had moved to Jacksonville and uh, Marjorie Moe and her husband let me rent a room in the back of their house for $100 a month. I didn't have a bed. I just had folded blankets and going to that job every day was the greatest thing. I'd go in early. I'd stay late. It was exciting. I was learning everything about TV. What did you love about that? Uh, it was just on the cutting edge of every moment of something important was happening and you were part of it. You were there. If you weren't there, you were there moments afterwards. Just things that were just really kind of like eye-opening and talking to politicians and, and hearing what they had to say and trying to get an idea of the picture. So I went from Jacksonville where I did this job and after three months, the stipend ran out. They hired me for another three months. I worked for a fabulous uh, news director there. No relation to me. His name was Tom Sanders. And Tom Sanders had been responsible for Viz News, which is an old version of uh, like an agency. Uh, he worked for Viz News in Asia and was responsible for the coverage of much of the Vietnam War. Um, I want to pick up on that, too. And basically what what how you became uh, kind of the Florida started is kind of as uh, Florida being your home base for so many great stories, but we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're talking with Carrie Sanders, the retired NBC News correspondent, and today's show regular. We'll be back in a minute on Sundial. This is Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're back with Carrie Sanders. Carrie, why was Florida such a great home base for you, uh, as you covered national news? Because you always found a way to make the Florida story show the connection to the national story. I, I, well, first of all, Florida is such a such an unusual state. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some crazy stuff. So uh, I was in Jacksonville at WTLV. I go to Wake TV in Fort Myers, which is a CBS station. Uh, I make my way to WTVT in Tampa. Mm -hmm. I go wind up at WTBJ, Channel 4 at the time, in Miami. And each time I'm in a different part of the state, I'm realizing that the things that happen here happen nowhere else. I mean, just extreme, extreme things. Uh, Did you have a, a story? Do you remember one of your first stories that went national? Not necessarily the first one, but one of the first earlier things that, that you wrote about in Florida or that you reported in Florida I, that went I, national. I can actually tell you, I do remember a story in Jacksonville, Florida that was a horrific tragedy. Now, when you say went national, my voice was not used nationally. My voice didn't sound like it does now. It was squeaky and I was learning how to talk as a reporter and everything else. But okay. I went out and covered the story of uh, a rooming house fire in Jacksonville. 
and it was brutal. It was an old wooden building. It was a rooming house. The fire caught. It killed seven or eight people. Oh it was horrific. We were there very quickly because one of our cameramen that I worked with was also a uh, fireman. So he kind of listened to the scanner. We got there. It was just a tremendously sad story. But I remember that... Our material, this was at WTVJ, or WTLV was an ABC station at the time. All of our raw material went up to New York. And it was such an instructive, instructive way to learn to tell a story. The story presented on the local news was a lot of narration of talking about everything right. that how horrible it happened. The reporter for ABC used very short sentences and didn't speak a lot and let the natural sound of the moment tell the horror of what was going on. The sound of the crackling fire, the firemen yelling to each other, the radio calls that were going back and forth. And through that, I had a very instructive moment as a reporter that your job is not to be there to just narrate every moment that happened, but to stand back and let that moment that's unfolding there reach out to the viewer, which is kind of what I have done with my career just from that moment, learning that sometimes saying nothing is more powerful than talking. That must have been a really important lesson as you start doing things that are national. And for instance, I'm thinking of your, your war coverage. You were embedded with the Marines and there's so much of uh, show don't tell that that must have gone, gone on in that. Absolutely. You know, the, the I, I, first of all, USMC, amazing, because I'm alive today because of those young men who were there. You know, wow. this is this is real war. It's very dangerous. We don't carry guns. We are just there, and we're embedded with them, meaning that we are actually traveling with them. We are with them. And uh, take, when, take me back. When when was that? Put put me in the, the time frame. What year would that have been? Uh, boy, aren't you going to challenge oh, me here? No. So the first <laughs> time I went to was the first Gulf War when oh. General Schwarzkopf was... Uh, trying to remove Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. So, so we like launched out of... 89, 90 or yeah, so, something like that. Yeah, I want to say... And then... God, I hate to do this because I'm so bad with numbers. I'm going to blame it on dyslexia. <laughs> but um, when I'm embedded, because that, that time with Schwarzkopf was not embedded. They, they just had pools and sent us out. Right. And that's what really ultimately got me the job in Miami. But I, NBC sent me to the, the war when we're uh, trying to... Ultimately, you know, George Bush is the president and they're trying to take out Saddam. So that's when I'm embedded with the uh, the Marines. Um, Tell me about that experience. Well, uh, it started out that we were in the desert coming back and forth. And I met the uh, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. And this was pre-war and we're just doing features and talking about what they're doing. And you got to remember, Marines, 18, 19, 20 years old, very young, not sure what to expect. They're about to go into war. Training absolutely these guys are trained up but you know the whole idea is that you all operate on muscle memory and instinct at this point you have been taught what to do but you haven't been challenged yet and so our story i'm a little bit older i've been to other conflicts a lot of questions they would ask me um about it when we were off camera but mm -hmm. i would tell the stories about what they were going through and they're preparing for uh and circumstances led to the fact that uh Another correspondent for NBC had to leave and go back to Chicago. And so he was supposed to be embedded with the troops. He had the satellite dish. He had the engineer. He had the vehicle that was going to travel with them. Because he had to go back to Chicago, all of a sudden this gear was available. 
And so <coughs> I made my way uh, back out to the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, and I talked to the Lieutenant Colonel, Royal Mortensen, and I said, what do you say that if there's a green light and you go, that we travel with you? So the Pentagon was heavily involved in approving this stuff long before. There was no time to get the Pentagon involved at this point. So he used a term, which I didn't know at the time, which is a, a military term. So you're trying to cut a drug deal with me? And I'm like, <laughs> excuse me? And he goes, well, that's what we call it, you know, when you're making a side deal. Oh, that's and funny. I said, absolutely, that's what I'm trying to do. And so uh, the next day, we were living with them out in the, uh, in the desert. And when the green light came, we were given permission to come along. Now we had all of our satellite equipment on an old Humvee that NBC had purchased and we'd cleaned up and everything else. As they were getting ready to launch, they go, we don't trust this Humvee. We've looked at it. So they pulled all our gear off and put it on one of their troop transport trucks. I think they called them 10 tons. And off we went. And so I traveled right with them and we went all the way up into Baghdad. Wow. You said that there was moments where they literally saved your life. Oh, absolutely. Can you talk about that? Well, the Battle of Nazaria was perhaps the first real battle that the U.S. engaged during that during that war. And uh, at one point, there was a lot of gunfire, and they got us down as the gunfire was going. In the weirdest ways of, you know, crawling in the dirt and making your way up to a soldier or in this case a marine uh and holding a microphone and interviewing him while he's holding a gun and has his sight on somebody and he's trying to decide whether to shoot or not shoot uh you you realize that if 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 vietnam was the living room war as they called it this was the first true live war we were there while marine is making the decision to shoot don't shoot um wow but having somebody put their hand on your shoulder and push you back down and when the incoming fire comes is how people save your lives. And, you, you know, you there's just things you don't know because you, you're not a Marine, you haven't been trained. And even though they're young, they are more aware of certain things than I was. Uh, perhaps the most, the, the most frightening moment truly was, and this is a case of right place, right time, or right place, uh, or wrong place, right time. Mm -hmm. We decided with the encouragement of... Uh, the lieutenant colonel, that we wanted to go further up towards the front line. Now, it's it's kind of an asymmetrical war. It's not really front lines, sure. but we decided we wanted to get further up. And with his blessing, we went further up. What we didn't know until we returned is where we had been was blown to smithereens. Wow. I mean, trucks burned, blown to smithereens. And here's the worst part about it. It was friendly fire. So in the chaos or the fog of war, if they say, this happens and we would have been killed. And sadly, we would have been killed by our own country, you know, but we were in the right place, right time in that we went away and came back. And fortunately, uh, the people who were in those vehicles were not in those vehicles at the time of the friendly fire because they would have been killed too. So uh, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines actually had no casualties in the war, which wow. was remarkable. How, how did you come back changed from that experience? Well, that up front? I could certainly sleep anywhere because I'd slept in the desert and I came home and I remember saying, see that rock over there? I could use that rock as a pillow. I could sleep here, no problem. <laughs> um, I, I, I would say that I, I you know, I, because I had been to other conflicts, uh, I certainly recognized what happens. Um, and 
I, I, I'm not a political person. I make my point of stepping back from politics. I don't want you to have an opinion of where I stand on anything. But I will say that coming back from war, having, having seen the innocent people in many conflicts who are the people who lose the most, it, it was definitely a reminder that when there is true war, that those people who simply want to raise a family, want to feed them and take care of them, uh, they're very often the people caught in the middle of what is going on on the policy end of things. And it's hard to see. It's hard to see children. It's hard to see, you know, parents holding a dead child or the parents themselves being killed. Um, but that's what happens in war. That's why, that's why uh, every member of the military I met said that they would like to take the politicians who make decisions out to the National Cemetery in Arlington and talk to them there before they decide we're going to war because they, they understand the costs of war because they've been in it. How did working and, and in environments like that help you appreciate in reporting on stuff that was lighter? Like you said, well, shark. It, it, like shark, you've done shark diving, and yeah. and uh, you know uh, you were rappelling down the side of a cliff. In one clip, I remember seeing there must be an aspect of that that you that you enjoyed, kind of that lighter thing, which would, we saw you on the Today Show doing stuff like right. that. Right, and I felt that that was important. Um, I wanted to take people to see the joys of life, and also to understand, for instance, with shark diving. I mean, I would do stories about sharks pretty consistently because people. Uh, especially those that aren't in Florida, but you know, around our country that believe that sharks are just man-eaters out there trying to kill us. And actually they're not. And there's a lot of science that is still being discovered about sharks that tells us a little bit about what's going on in our environment. So having the opportunity to tell those stories uh, were meaningful to me. Uh, and also uh, there was a certain amount of I guess just adventure. You know, you could think going to war is an adventure, but I lost 17 pounds of uh, of weight during the war. Wow, stress uh, weight. That's all worried wow. off me. All wow. worried off me. This, they, we're eating MREs that have three to 4,000 calories. Trust me, you're losing that weight because you are worried. Uh, getting a chance to go and explain how turtles our sea turtles that uh -huh. we get a chance to occasionally see if we're in the right place at the right time on the beach, how their sex is not determined by chromosomes, but rather is determined by hot or cold. When they lay those eggs, the warmer it is, the more likely that will hatch as a female turtle. The colder it is, uh, male. So they say hot chicks, cool dudes, which is kind of a funny <laughs> thing that the, the biologists use. But that re then reflects something about what's going on with our society and what's going on with our environment, because indeed there are a lot more girl turtles over boy turtles being born right now. And telling that story, I find just interesting. Uh, I get a chance to be there going out in the middle of the night, trying to find the turtles laying their eggs and then sharing that story with the audience. Uh, to me, you say it's lighter news? Absolutely. Uh, I would actually argue it's also more memorable news. People remember that. They hang on to that and they learn something. So in the last minute or so that we have, tell me about your next adventure. What is the thing that you want to do now without well, that press pass hanging around your neck? I, I'm not sure. I will say this. There is 
a growing interest among viewers, among our society, to get a little bit deeper information. Uh, by the very nature of what I did with NBC, my stories, they, they say, what's your story about? Oh, it's about a minute and a half, okay? That's the joke. <laughs> because my stories would be anywhere from 90 seconds to six minutes long. Um, there is an opportunity, I think, to tell longer form stories. NBC has Peacock Productions, which is the peacock on your streaming service. Those are longer stories there, not just the, the programming, but news. There's an opportunity, I think, to tell. But for the first for the first bit, I need to take a break and just put my feet up and relax. Well, something tells me that we will see more of you in a new format uh, because uh, the man loves adventure. Kerry Sanders, you have retired from NBC News and the Today Show as a regular. Uh, thank you so much for making the time to be on Sundial with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, February 7th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateus Sanchez. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. Our theme music right there is by Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo. You can find them at gopalo.com. If you missed any part of the show, you can download our podcast. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Chef Michael Schwartz is a pioneer in South Florida's food scene. He's a James Beard Award winner, and he's been nominated yet again, this time on the national level. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.